Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, as you're probably well aware, midterms are coming up really quickly here in about four days, and there's been a lot of ramping up of rhetoric on both sides, both for the Democrats in terms of how important these midterms are, but more importantly, and what I want to talk about today with regard to the Republicans and the way they say not only that things are going to turn out, but what will happen if they don't turn out that way. And what I'm getting to here is that what I've noticed, especially in the last couple of weeks, but mainly in the last month or so, is that on the right, in the bubble, just in general from members of the GOP, there has been a disturbing rise in the amount of either threatened or carried out domestic political violence in the last month. And of course, the main manifestation of this has been the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But when I really started noticing this around the time of my birthday, October 6th or so, was when the mainstream news started reporting on the poll watchers in Arizona. Basically, there were masked men with tactical vests and gear and armed with rifles guarding ballot boxes from afar. So if you don't know, the way it works, in Arizona at least, is you cannot have a partisan person watching over ballot boxes or polling places, I believe more than 50 yards or so away from the actual box. So in other words, if you want to be a quote-unquote unofficial poll watcher in Arizona, you have to do so from a far enough distance away that you can't really affect people or intimidate them directly. But in Arizona, this hasn't stopped members of the radical right from taking up arms, putting on their tactical gear, masking themselves up with sunglasses and whatnot so nobody can recognize them, even going so far as to cover up their license plates so that if they have to make a quick getaway, no one can identify them by their license plate number. And just a little bit of a side note, it's pretty clear to me that by doing this, by masking themselves and their cars and their identities, they are 100% knowledgeable that what they're doing is wrong and illegal and they could get in trouble for it. And so the fact that they know this and do it anyway, and I'm going to get into this later, is really scary to me, especially in terms of what we're dealing with with regards to what could happen after these insanely important midterm elections that we're about to have. Because if these people are willing to do this blatant intimidation, there's no other way of saying it, out in the open where everyone can see them, even though they're masked and their identities are sort of hidden, if they're willing to do this out in the open, imagine what they're going to be willing to do if the people they're trying to get in power get there and enable them even further. So while there haven't been any instances that I know of, at least, of any of these poll watchers actually violently engaging people, there have been plenty of instances of intimidation 
writing their info down and going up and asking what they're doing. Just behaving like bullies, really, except bullies with guns trying to stop a federal election process from happening the way they don't want it to. And the worst part about this whole thing is that at both the state and national level, the GOP has not only allowed these efforts, they've applauded it. They've encouraged it. Arizona State Senator Kelly Townsend made this clear back in May when she said, and I quote, I've been so pleased to hear all of you vigilantes out there that want to camp out at these drop boxes, right? So do it. We put the word out today that if you're going to come and be a mule and stuff ballot boxes this time, you're going to get caught. So, I mean, there you have it. A sitting state senator calling armed, masked terrorists. And let's be very clear, folks, that is what these people are. If you look up the dictionary definition of terrorism, it is literally either the violence or threat of violence towards some sort of political end. So these pull box watchers with their masks and their guns and walking up to people and trying to intimidate them into not voting, they are terrorists. And this sitting state senator called them vigilantes as if it were a good thing, as if what they were doing was just and righteous and American. They are terrorists. I know most people, when they think of terrorism, they're thinking of someone like Al-Qaeda or 9-11, or maybe if you want to go back a little bit further, the IRA during the Troubles in Ireland in the 90s. You know, people who actually shoot up places and plant bombs and enact actual violence to try and get their political goals. That's not what's happening here, but the whole idea behind what these people are doing is that they are threatening something like that happening if they don't get what they want. And if you ask me, and if you ask the dictionary, as I said, doing that is just as much terrorism as what the IRA was doing. The only difference is people aren't dying. And when you show up to a ballot box to watch it, armed with a military-style loaded rifle, I think the threat and the idea that you're trying to convey with that threat is pretty clear. If we catch you cheating, or in this case, voting the way we don't want you to, we might shoot you. And that's exactly what these people are doing. They're using the threat of violence to intimidate people into either not voting or voting the way they want to. They're doing this not only with their guns, but as I said, they were also photographing people, taking pictures of their license plates, coming up and directly confronting them and say, are you dumping ballots? It's gotten to the point now where the federal government is seriously considering sending in troops to safeguard the midterms in Arizona and other places that are having problems like this, because this isn't just a thing that's happening in Arizona. There have been instances in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Georgia and Places that, let's be clear, are very important for the Democrats to win if we want to maintain the House and Senate. And honestly, I hope they do. I hope Joe Biden actually grows a spine, which it seems like he has been recently with the whole Dark Brandon thing, and actually sends federal troops to these areas to make sure that there's no ballot intimidation by the extreme right. And of course, the extreme right would itself take this as a sign that. 
the socialist pedophiliac Biden cabal is finally coming for them. But I'm convinced that a lot of these people, especially the ones that are covering their faces and going to the ballot boxes, are all bark, no bite. In other words, if federal truce really came down and said, we dare you to try and intimidate voters at the polls, they'd back down. They wouldn't do anything. But getting back to my original point, what I wanted to ask with this episode today was how and why things like this and the Paul Pelosi attack are suddenly happening, and how is the bubble and the GOP in general reacting to them? So with that in mind, I'd like to dive a little bit into the mystery that is the sudden appearance of these poll watchers and see sort of where it came from and what they really might be trying to accomplish. So thankfully, I don't have to do that. Someone else already did. His name's Ben Collins. He's a reporter for NBC News. And he did an investigation on basically where all these poll watchers came from. Turns out, it actually did come from the bubble, specifically from Truth Social. On Truth Social, they were originally called tailgate parties. And the idea was so popular, it actually got retruthed. So Trump's version of retweeting by Trump himself. The name was soon changed to Mule Parties, named, of course, after Dinesh D'Souza's propaganda movie, 2000 Mules, which, of course, speculates that the election in 2020 was stolen by Democrats who paid people to stuff ballots into ballot boxes. So the idea of the Mule Parties, these ballot watchers, did come from the bubble itself. It was basically just a silly thing. Oh, we should get together at ballot boxes on social media, and it sort of spread from there. But at these mule parties, people have regularly documented and harassed people for doing something as simple as backing their car up to the ballot box when they could have just driven forward to it. They literally use this as an excuse to say, hey, that's suspicious behavior. He might be dumping ballots. He might be stuffing the box. Which, of course, is absolutely ridiculous. Maybe he just came in from the other side. But this is not a real reality that we're dealing with here. This is the reality of truthiness, as I've said before. These people who are doing these mule parties are seeing what they want to see. They are interpreting a completely unrelated and innocent situation as being sinister specifically because that's what they want it to be. They want more than anything in the world to be right about all this conspiracy stuff. And because this is the big lie we're talking about, I've mentioned on my show many times the fact that it originally came from Hitler, saying that people will more readily believe the big lie than the small lie. It will never occur to any of these people in a million years that Trump or Mike Lindell or Dinesh D'Souza or any of these people who are feeding them this information would ever lie to them about it. And so with this in mind, they're constantly looking for confirmation that they're right. Like, it has to be right. There's no way they're lied to me. It has, there has to be some sort of evidence that proves this. And so they are looking for it everywhere, including in places where they would never find it, and then just pretending that they found it. 
So that's what this whole thing with the poll watchers and the ballot boxes is about. They are looking for something that's not there, and when they don't find it, they're trying to force it into existence. And so obviously the question with this approach becomes, what happens when they start forcing it harder? In other words, how long before this threat of violence that they are clearly putting on the voters at the polling boxes becomes actual violence? And if we look throughout history, slow escalation of this rhetoric and of this behavior, such as what's taking place here, almost always ends up in some sort of violent outburst. It could be said that the first time this happened in American history was the Boston Massacre. And the most recent example, of course, was January 6th, up until last week. And let's be clear about one thing before I move on. Pretty much everyone that's been engaged in the kind of domestic terrorism we've seen, both from the poll watchers and from David DePapa, think that January 6th was a good thing or that it didn't go far enough. And we're seeing the consequences of the spread of such violent and intimidatory rhetoric in real time as we get closer to the midterms. So with that in mind, I'd now like to move on to the actual attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. So a couple of interesting things to note at the beginning here. The night before the attack, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, as we know, is a QAnoner and fervent follower of Trump and the far right, tweeted, just wait until tomorrow, with absolutely no context whatsoever. Nothing else notable that I can remember happened on this day other than the attack. And obviously, I'm not going to point any fingers or start up any conspiracy theories, but I just thought the timing of a tweet like that with no context added in was just a bit interesting. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that CNN actually ran a story the same day that Pelosi's husband was attacked saying that the FBI was warning about the threat that domestic violent extremists pose to the midterms specifically. Again, just the timing couldn't have been more pertinent to the situation. So to start this whole thing off, I just want to go through the raw details of the Pelosi story. So for those of you who don't know, Pelosi's attacker was named David DePapa, and he was a Canadian who was actually in the U.S. illegally, and I'll get to that later when I talk about the bubble's reaction. But more importantly, he was an election denier, a fervent QAnon believer, and a diehard follower specifically of the MyPillow guy Mike Lindell, who has just been pushing lie after lie after lie about how the election was stolen and there were all sorts of shenanigans going on behind the scenes, bankrolled by the Democrats. So this guy, David DePapa, entered Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco house with a hammer and zip ties and duct tape and rope, breaking windows and yelling out, where's Nancy? If we remember, the January 6th insurrectionists were yelling the exact same thing when they stormed the Capitol. He found her husband in the house, who had no security detail unlike his wife, 
he told her husband that he'd tie him up till Nancy got back. And then his plan, according to his confession, was to break Nancy's kneecaps and torture her until she gave up the information he wanted to know about the Democrats stealing the election. Or maybe something about pedophilia or Satanism or eating children. I mean, who knows what was going on inside this guy's head? He's obviously completely nuts. But I'm just going off what he told investigators and what we know about the facts of the situation. He went into Nancy Pelosi's house looking for her, found her husband, tried to tie him up. He called 911, left the line open, and because of a quick thinking 911 operator, police did a wellness check on the property where they found Pelosi and David DePapa holding a hammer. And when the police asked DePapa to drop the hammer, he took it and struck Pelosi in the head with it. He had to go into surgery and was just recently released in the last couple of days. Apparently, he'll make a full recovery and he'll be fine, but that doesn't change the fact that this guy broke into Nancy Pelosi's home looking to harm and torture her and settled for her husband instead when he couldn't get to her. It's a straight-up act of domestic terrorism. But even when we were just getting in the initial reports of what had happened, the conservative media bubble definitely didn't see it that way. In fact, at least at first, the general reaction of outlets in the bubble was to either not talk about it or try and paint this guy as something that he wasn't. For example, when the reports first started coming in, it was reported on a lot of the far-right outlets that he was anti-war. And because of this, that probably meant he was a liberal. However, once his background was actually looked up and discovered by other media outlets, they pretty much shut up about it and mostly just wouldn't talk about the attack at all. But then the conspiracy theories started circulating, and I'll go into one of those specifically a little bit later. But once the conspiracy theories started, so did the cruelty. Because if there's anything that the media bubble loves to do, it's make liberals look bad. And what looks worse for a liberal than getting attacked in your own home by a crazy person. Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, who's currently running for re-election, started the whole thing off by saying, quote, I don't advocate for violence, but we're going to send Nancy back to be with him in San Francisco. Later on, during an appearance on Fox News, he was actually given the chance and asked to retract his statement, but he didn't. He basically said, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. In other words, I said something that was absolutely disgusting, in poor taste, and completely inappropriate and uncalled for. I know I said it, and I'm not sorry about it. Absolutely disgusting, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. But the Fox pundits, and even their regular news anchors, definitely got the ball rolling in terms of inappropriate comments. Former California gubernatorial candidate Michael Schellenberger, with a bit of encouragement from one of the Fox News hosts covering the story, said that the attack shouldn't be blamed on the attacker or the MAGA ideology that he followed, but on California's soft policy towards violent crime, with a little extra be afraid thrown in for good measure. Uh, and this person isn't protected against being assaulted. What are, what are regular folks there in San Francisco to do? But you've seen this effort to basically de-police, to demonize the police, to reduce consequences for crime. 
other Fox News hosts actually tried to shoehorn this story into the GOP talking points, saying that this shows that crime could hit anybody, and it's random, and this could happen anywhere, and that's why it's such a significant story. Not because of what he did, but because it's crime. And crime happens just rampantly and without fail in every democratically run city. Not mentioning, of course, that pretty much every statistic out there shows the exact opposite, that blue states and blue cities are actually safer per 100,000 people than red states and red cities. But that doesn't gel with the bubble's narrative, so we're not going to talk about it. Speaking of GOP talking points, they also tried to shoehorn in the fact that this guy was an illegal alien. And the only reason this crime happened at all was because San Francisco is a sanctuary city. And so, if he had been deported back to the country where he came from like he should have, this attack would never have happened. And while this may technically be true, I suppose, I'm pretty sure he's not the one that Republicans would have deported first. He's too, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? American-looking? Fair? I, I think you know what I'm getting at here. Now, I should mention that even though they were making all these excuses other than the obvious for why this might have happened, they were actually, up to this point, reporting on the story as it happened and giving somewhat accurate information about what was being discovered. Because again, at the time, we didn't know very much about it. But then, it came time for the primetime hosts. And Jesse Waters came right on and proceeded to say something that was so unbelievable so tasteless, so out of touch, so maddening, that it literally almost made me throw my remote at the TV. What I want is that I want this alleged perpetrator to be treated the exact same way if he had treated, if he had attacked anybody else. Because a lot of people get hit with hammers. A lot of people get attacked. And a lot of the times, they're out on bail the next day, and it's a simple assault charge. So I don't know why this guy is being treated differently. And he's facing, what, attempted homicide? He's in prison right now? We see people assault people all the time randomly with all kinds of weapons, and we see them released the next day. So I don't know why this guy is getting all of a sudden special treatment or different treatment because the, the victim was so high profile. Remember... If you call on a welfare check, the left wants to send a social worker. What if a social worker had come to this call? You would have had a dead husband and you would have had a dead social worker. Donald That's why you have to have police, and I agree with Tyrus, police responded right away and they handled the situation. Thank God the police were there. And remember, the Democrats defunded the police in San Francisco. So if you didn't get that, Waters is literally saying that the guy didn't really do anything wrong simply because, and I'm quoting him directly, people get hit with hammers all the time, and they just get out with a slap on the wrist and an assault charge. So what he's insinuating that he doesn't really say directly, but he definitely wants the viewer to understand, is that David DePapa is being treated differently because the victim was both a liberal and the husband of a high-profile member of the liberal government. And he even threw in a jab at liberal and San Francisco police policies at the end, 
saying that the Democrats just want to defund the police, and if they had actually done it, he would have been dead. So what this guy did really wasn't all that bad, all things considered. In that same segment, he went on to say that the media ignores violence against the GOP, as if that excuses what this guy did. I'm just going to say it straight away, folks. This is dangerous. Basically saying that violence like this is okay against liberals because you're just going to get out with a slap on the wrist and an assault charge and because the media ignores things like that that are done to the GOP, which, by the way, they're not. I have yet to see any example whatsoever of a liberal activist bashing a conservative's head in with a hammer. So to say that what David DePapa did wasn't that bad because it happens all the time and because the media ignores that it's done to conservatives, which it isn't, that makes it kind of okay for him to have done it, that is just an extraordinarily, unbelievably insensitive, messed up, terrible, mean take on this attack. And in all the time I've been covering the bubble for this podcast, both this iteration and the previous one, I have never been as angry at what I was watching as I was when Jesse Waters said this. And the worst part about this whole thing is that that was all that was said for the entire show on the subject of the attack on Paul Pelosi. Nothing else about what was, without a doubt, the biggest news story of the day, if not the last month. Just a very short thing at the beginning, sympathizing with the attacker. And then Jesse Waters went on to report on such engaging stories as a homeless guy in L.A. who built a shed for himself on the street. And, of course, Hunter Biden's laptop. Because that's what's really important, folks. Not the fact that the Speaker of the House's husband just got his head bashed in by a hammer by a guy who said straight up that he was going to torture her when she got back, it's Hunter Biden and his laptop from hell. But to their credit, it does seem like Fox definitely sort of learned their lesson, because as you can imagine, when Waters said this, it spread like wildfire through Twitter and other social media circles, and basically resulted in him trending, but in a very bad way. So after he said this, it seems like Fox definitely tried to sort of trim down and tone down the rhetoric because when Tucker came on, he didn't lead with it at all. Instead, he talked about the Babylon Bee, saying that the left can't stand it when you make fun of them. In fact, the attack wasn't mentioned at all on Tucker's show, except for an actual news break that they did in the middle of it in which they actually reported fairly accurately on what was happening. The anchor even said that the attacker said, where's Nancy, and that the attack was condemned on both sides. Which, if we're talking in terms of lawmakers, for the most part, with some notable examples, Glenn Youngkin being one, it was. But that was it. No other mention of it from Tucker himself on his show. He just did an in-depth piece about border security and how bad it was, followed by one of the strangest and dumbest things I've ever seen on Tucker Carlson tonight, a game show featuring a couple of his fellow hosts making fun of liberal reporting. I won't go into more detail than that other than to say it was extremely cringeworthy, even for what I've seen on the right so far. 
But the point is that he didn't mention the Pelosi attack once during his entire show. And neither did Hannity, who came on right after him. He simply talked about how badly the Democrats are going to be beaten in the midterms and threw in a few quips about Biden's old age and senility for good measure. He spent the whole show on the midterms talking to various right-wing pollsters, candidates, and of course, our good buddy Ted Cruz. It was actually Laura Ingram who was the first of the primetime hosts other than Jesse Waters to comment on it. And as I said earlier, it seemed like Fox definitely wanted to tone the rhetoric down. So Laura Ingram was a little bit more subdued than Jesse was. But what she said was almost as rage-inducing. She said that everyone needs to calm down about what's happening here. She wondered if the left would use it to political ends. She ended her opening commentary with, They feel their power slipping and will do anything to keep it. So that implies a lot of things with that statement when you sort of relate it to what happened with Pelosi's husband. Mainly that, was it a false flag attack by the liberals? Did they let it happen so that they could give themselves some sympathy votes? Do they see their power in government slipping? And now they're using this attack as an excuse to clamp down on non-believers? So just some serious fear-mongering coming from Laura Ingram, sort of satiating the adherence of the bubble with their daily dose of fear. The Democrats are coming for you, and they want to come for you so bad, they're even attacking members of their own party. Be afraid! And like Jesse Waters, once she got this out of her system, that's all she wrote for the entire show. She didn't talk about Pelosi for the entire rest of her segment. And it seems to me like this was sort of a simultaneous move on Fox's part to both try to lessen the impact of what happened because they knew that the guy was a MAGA maniac and to sort of ask themselves, how can we turn this on its head to own the libs? And since they couldn't figure that part out very quickly, for the first day or so at least, they really didn't talk about it too much. But as the weekend came along, they started to kind of figure out what narrative they wanted to paint with it. So the weekend brought on a lot of both sidesism and whataboutism in the bubble. So starting with CNN, who, as I said in my last episode, is basically now trying to be part of the bubble, they brought in James Comer, who's a Republican representative from Kentucky, and he said that, quote, people in both parties should tone down the rhetoric. Basically, equating liberal, understandably angry reaction to this happening with Republican anger about things like the election being stolen. Obviously, this is a completely ridiculous comparison, but that didn't stop him from making it. Meanwhile, in the actual conservative media bubble, there was plenty of rhetoric speaking to the sense of Democrats are going to use this attack for political gain, and even some going so far as saying that Democrats were the ones that caused it. Newsmax, for example, had Mike Huckabee on as a guest. He said that Democrats are trying to paint a picture of this guy, by which he meant David DePapa, as a right-winger, while it appears he was not. Except he was. Now, to be fair, this interview did happen early in the weekend before we had more information on the assailant. But, I mean, between the fact that he was at Nancy Pelosi's house with a hammer, 
yelling, where's Nancy, just like the folks at the Capitol did on January 6th, it's pretty clear why he was there. And I can tell you, it was not because of some weird liberal conspiracy. He also said that Democrats were trying to draw focus away from what people really care about. And this is where the Democrats are really at fault here narrative starts coming into play. So I'm quoting Huckabee directly from his interview here that actually had it word for word up on the Newsmax website. Quote, What they really care about is that they are vulnerable to criminals breaking in their homes and hitting them in the head with a hammer. They know it could happen in the streets of New York or San Francisco or Minneapolis. And they're also concerned about the fact that they may have to sell a kidney just to buy enough groceries to get through the month because of inflation. And they can't afford to put gas in their cars and go see grandma or take their kids trick-or-treating because it's so expensive under what Joe Biden has done with his attack on the American energy industry. So if you didn't get that, Mike Huckabee actually tried to take the issue of a crazy MAGA person hitting the speaker in the house's husband in the head with a hammer in his own home and both equate it and tie it into selling a kidney just so you can buy gas. It both makes no sense whatsoever and is completely insensitive. Talk about using the attack for political gain. This is the pot calling the kettle black. Just complete non sequitur as far as trying to relate two things that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And of course, shameless whataboutism. And it all just makes my skin crawl. But this is Mike Huckabee we're talking about, so it probably makes a lot of other people's skin crawl too. But staying with Newsmax, one of their hosts, Rob Schmidt, over the weekend, said that liberals are the ones celebrating political violence and that the attack was their fault. He cited the liberal tendency to celebrate political violence. First off, no, we aren't. I can't honestly name a single example of any sort of liberal celebrating political violence in American history, really. But he also said that liberal leaders fashionably abandon law and order to fit the new woke orthodoxy. He went on to describe liberal cities as crime-ridden, desolate wastelands where liberals sit in their ivory towers. The one thing they're best at is ignoring victims of crime. Yes, us liberals sitting up in our castles looking down at the poor huddled masses that we're trying to help by giving them better social programs. Again, anyone who knows anything about how politics works knows that's not how liberalism works. Liberalism isn't about being better than everyone else and sitting up in your ivory tower. That's actually what conservatism is about, as I explained in my first episode of this podcast. Conservatism is all about making sure the people who are in power stay there and get more, because that's just how things always have been and how things always should be. But as I've said many times on this show, nuance is effectively lost in the conservative media bubble. It's just conservative good, liberal bad. Moving on to Breitbart, they actually have their own section at the top of the page for the attack itself. And believe it or not, it's mostly just pretty honestly vanilla reporting on how strongly liberals are condemning the attack. But to be clear, the narrative that all these stories were painting does seem to point at sort of the politicization of this story, mainly by the liberals. One of the stories that this section links to says, quote, The Democrat media complex has tried to incriminate conservatives for the attack. 
And I've talked about on this show before the fact that they're trying to rebrand the Democratic Party as the Democrat Party in the bubble. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to turn Democrat into a bad word the same way that they've turned liberal into a bad word. Because if you call them the Democratic Party, which is what they are, it sort of signifies that they can be dealt with, that they can be reasoned with, that they're really sort of just, they believe in the democratic process and democratic ideals. But if you call them the Democrat Party, it implies that they're immovable, unshakable, and they are in this corner that we've painted them into, which is just socialist, totalitarian evil. So again, not too much overtly political stuff on Breitbart, which is surprising to me, but they are definitely trying to paint a narrative of the liberals are trying to politicize this. And so while I was doing this roundup of all the conservative media bubble sites, I decided, what the heck, I'd go ahead and check Infowars and see what they had to say about it. And it was interesting because there wasn't a lot of information regarding the actual story, which doesn't really surprise me. This is Infowars we're talking about. But there were a lot of stories about how we aren't allowed to question what really happened. And honestly, this is a pretty common refrain from places like Infowars who dabble in conspiracy theories. That you should believe what we say because the liberal media is attacking us for saying it. And this is an idea that was really popular in the fringes of the bubble for a long time, but never really seeped its way into the center until basically Trump came along. And it's one of the ways in which the bubble sort of keeps itself together and keeps people in it from getting out. Basically saying that you should question what the mainstream media is telling you and not what we're telling you because the mainstream media is telling you that you should question us. Why would they say that if they didn't have something to hide? And this, of course, is classic conspiracy theory thinking and how a lot of them actually gain traction. And speaking of conspiracy theories, you may have heard that over the weekend, there was a specific one about Paul Pelosi that made the rounds on social media. This conspiracy theory stated that Paul Pelosi knew David DePapa previously because they had met each other at a gay bar and that they were both in their underwear when the police were called. So in other words, the attack wasn't political. It was a lover's quarrel between two secretly gay men. And this whole conspiracy theory somehow stemmed from the fact that on the 911 call, Pelosi called David DePapa a friend. And we all know in hindsight now that Pelosi said this because he was speaking in code to the 911 operator so that she'd send a wellness check. But of course, this is the bubble we're talking about. No one cares about that. They just see Pelosi, gay lover, both in their underwear, and jump on it. So let's go through exactly how that one word from the 911 call morphed into Paul Pelosi caught almost naked with his almost naked gay lover. So as we now know, the 911 call was made in secret by Paul Pelosi when he asked his attacker if he could go to the bathroom. He left the phone on and spoke in code to the dispatcher in case he was found out. He called David DePapa his friend, but said he didn't know who he was. The dispatcher obviously heard him talking in this manner and thought things were suspicious, so she sent the police to check in on him. They arrived at his house in three minutes and found Pelosi and the man in the house fighting over the hammer. When the police told him to drop the hammer, he grabbed it and smacked Pelosi in the head with it. 
So when this was happening, information was coming in very fast from a lot of different places, which happens a lot with breaking news stories. So some people were basically just tweeting out details as fast as they could get them. So one of these initial reports said that either Pelosi or both men were in their underwear and that there may have been another man in the house. This report was attributed to the Fox News affiliate in Oakland. And the reporter quickly retracted this report, saying only that he was working to clarify. But the damage was already done because before he tweeted out this correction, the New York Post had already picked up the story and run with it. The news then reached Dinesh D'Souza, Mr. 2000 Mules, who tweeted, quote, Were Paul Pelosi and his attacker both in their underwear? Both holding hammers? So obviously more speculation, but one thing you need to understand about the bubble and Dinesh D'Souza is that he is seen as unfeasibly truthful, especially by the MAGA crowd, because he's spent so much money and taken so much time trying to espouse these conspiracy theories about the 2020 election that, as I've said before, with regard to Hitler's big lie, they believe that there's no way that someone like this would lie about something so big. So predictably, once Dinesh D'Souza tweeted about it, we started seeing articles speculating as much, and with plenty of gay embellishments, popping up on multiple right-wing media sites. Then, the conspiracy theory got an absolutely massive boost that just completely broke the dam. This came when Elon Musk, the new overlord of Twitter, replied to a tweet by Hillary Clinton saying that there might be more to the Pelosi story than you think. He included in his reply a link to a story on a site called the Santa Monica Observer. This is a right-wing conspiracy site that is well known for pushing absolutely insane stories. For example, that Hillary Clinton died in 9-11 and is now being played by a body double, or that the man formerly known as Kanye West was secretly a Trump cabinet appointee. So the article that Elon Musk, the now owner and operator of a supposedly moderated Twitter, pointed to as evidence for his claim, speculated that Paul Pelosi was drunk, in his underwear, and in a spat with his gay lover, DePapa. There was lots of, the story just doesn't add up talk, combined with, this is what looks like happened. Again, this is the guy who is running the main free speech platform for the world at this point, touting this story as actual fact. Ironically, the author actually pulled the original article and replaced it with an apology and a disclaimer saying that, quote, it was always opinion. But it fooled Elon Musk, at least at first. And to his credit, he did actually delete his reply after there was a lot of backlash. But the important thing is that it was out there and it did the damage that it did because it then became the official narrative of the bubble. And the bubble continued to seize on this demonstrably false story long after it was disproven. They may not have been directly saying that this is what happened, but they certainly weren't denying it either and were going out of their way to make the viewers sort of draw their own conclusions to it. As an example, here's Jesse Waters doing that exact thing on his Monday night show. Why won't police say who opened the door? Instead, the complaint says Pelosi greeted police officers, greeted, and then went back to wrestling over a hammer. Hmm. We don't know what happened that night because we weren't there. 
and police haven't released any footage, body cam, surveillance, nothing. And San Francisco officials keep changing their story. Remember, there was confusion about the hammers, if there was a third person who opened the door. But if we've learned anything about the Pelosi's, you just got to keep asking questions. And Tucker Carlson, who came on right after him, did more than hint at it. Here's what he had to say. Elon Musk, in a tweet, shares a link from a site known to publish fake news. Really? What did Elon Musk do? Well, he linked to an article about how Paul Pelosi called the guy in his home a friend. Well, that's what the 911 tape says. You can draw your own conclusions or not. or Maybe you don't care, which is also fine. How is that fake? It seems to be real. Draw your own conclusions, but it seems to be real. This is a message that we hear all too often in the bubble. And this is the point that I wanted to get to with this episode. This is exactly what I'm talking about when I mention the purposeful vagueness that you see within the bubble's narrative. The vagueness of these kinds of statements is a prominent part of what keeps the narrative relevant and believable within the bubble. Keeping things vague like this and letting people draw their own conclusions while also sort of nudging them towards what you want them to believe, accomplishes two big things. First off, it gives them plausible deniability. So in other words, if something they say backfires on them or turns out not to be true in a way that makes them look bad, they can just say, oh, well, I'm just saying what I'm hearing. There's no harm in that. And obviously we see this a lot when the bubble has to walk stuff back. Oh, well, just asking questions here. And of course, there's the Tucker Carlson trial defense in which he was sued for defamation and he won his case because his lawyers said, and I quote, nobody in their right mind could ever believe that what Tucker does on his show could be considered news. So keeping things vague really gives members of the bubble an out for when their narrative breaks down either factually or by something they said that was distasteful. But secondly, and more importantly, and I've talked about this before, keeping things vague like this lets the GOP or the bubble or the far right insert whatever conclusions about the story that they want to make. For example, that Paul Pelosi is secretly gay and his secret gay lover came over in his underwear to attack him after he refused his advances. So in this way, they can paint whatever picture they want to of whatever happens in the news. They give you just the basic, irrefutable facts of what happened and what everybody knows happened, and then just say, was this happening? Could it have been this? We'll let you draw your own conclusions. But the scariest thing of all to come out of this story, and the reason I wanted to do an episode on this topic in the first place, is that with this story about Paul Pelosi, I'm now seeing what would appear to be the normalization of political violence on the right and in the bubble. It's already starting to happen in a variety of places, not just California and Arizona. For example, a Democratic candidate in a House seat for Pennsylvania was assaulted by a person in his backyard after multiple threats from anonymous people basically saying that the election was stolen and they weren't going to take it and they were going to do something about it. Well, somebody did. And they knocked him out in his own backyard. And if you read into the rhetoric that's going around on the right, this seems like this is just going to be the beginning. And how is the mainstream GOP reacting to all this violence and violent rhetoric? 
They're laughing about it. They're treating it as a joke. With regard to the Paul Pelosi attack, Carrie Lake actually said at one of her rallies, quote, Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently, her house doesn't have a lot of protection. And the crowd burst into laughter. In fact, the interviewer was laughing so hard he had to cover his face with his notes. Similarly, the Daily Caller poked fun at his situation, saying that, quote, Nancy Pelosi's husband is not having a great year. Former GOP Congressman Devin Nunes also joked about it on Truth Social. He was commenting on a photo of a guy in a costume with a big mallet, saying, quote, at least this guy had his clothes on. Then finally, there's the guy in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, who's running for school board, who posed with his wife and a skeleton. His wife is holding a bloody knife and lots of blood on her shirt, and he has a shirt that says, Where is Nancy? So it would seem that in the conservative media bubble, after the initial condemnation of the attack, reaction has now turned to either joking about it or actively encouraging it. We've seen, in the past few days since this occurred, a noticeable change in the way that the GOP and the bubble talk about violence. It's been pretty obvious since January 6th that the GOP and the bubble, at the very least, refuse to condemn violent actions by their followers. And as a result, the Washington Post has reported recently that since 2016, when Donald Trump was elected president, threats of violence against lawmakers recorded by U.S. Capitol Police have surged from roughly 900 cases in 2016 to 9,625 in 2021. So in other words, there's been a more than tenfold increase in the amount of violent incidents that have happened to lawmakers in the last five years. And I believe that this can be attributed specifically to the changing of rhetoric within the bubble and within the GOP itself to allow and encourage these kinds of things to happen. Sure, they might say that the actions that they took were bad or unscrupulous or shouldn't have happened, but there will always be a but added on. This but always asks a question to the effect of, why would someone do something like this? And the answer to that question is always, maybe they had a point with their beliefs. Maybe they just really believed in a stolen election. Maybe they just really believed in Pizzagate. Maybe these people storming the Capitol were just really angry about the election being stolen. And Trump actually said this directly to Kevin McCarthy during January 6th. Well, Kevin, I guess they're just more angry about the election than you are. But the thing about this argument is that it always ends in something like, these are legitimate issues that need to be addressed. It always concludes that the action isn't what's important, but the motive especially if that motive furthers the narrative that the bubble is trying to create. And Tucker Carlson, better than anyone else in the conservative media bubble, has perfected this projection over a number of years. I've actually broken it down into a formula. I call it the Tucker formula for political gaslighting. So let me tell you how it works. Most of the time, it can be done in a couple of sentences, which, by the way, is perfect for the uneducated conservative masses. But regardless of how long it takes for him to arrive at his point, the structure can always be broken down into three parts. Part one is always starting the message with something to the effect of, I'm not this, 
I don't agree with this, or I don't condone this. So in other words, starting right off with a combination of plausible deniability and subliminal messaging. And you might ask yourself, how is this subliminal messaging when he's saying he's not this thing? The point of him saying that I'm not a racist, for example, is that he's acknowledging the existence of those who agree with whatever he's denying himself to be. And he uses this as a sort of trigger for them to pay attention to what he's about to say. So by saying, I'm not racist, or I'm not anti-Semitic, or I don't condone political violence, he's basically telling people who agree with those sentiments, hey, listen up, I'm talking to you. In a way, he's sort of low-key saying that everything that follows after this statement is a signal that he agrees with their sentiments, but he's not one of them. Let's not forget the plausible deniability. It's very important, especially to someone as high-profile as Tucker Carlson. So if part one is the plausible deniability part, part two is the but part. In the statement of, I'm not a racist, but... And this is usually followed by something to the effect of, these are questions that need to be asked, or we need to ask why someone would believe something like this, or we need to ask why they wouldn't want us questioning this. And aside from the obvious, I'm just asking questions trope that I talked about earlier, this also serves as a sort of introduction to any evidence that they have, quote-unquote, supporting the action. For example, if they're talking about a white guy assaulting a black man, Tucker might cite minority crime rates or black-on-black violence. And the most commonly used examples of this are generally related to January 6th, at least as far as Tucker Carlson is concerned. He'll very commonly compare the violence of January 6th to what he sees as the violence of the Black Lives Matter movement, even though I've said multiple times on this show that it's a false comparison. But in the Tucker formula, that doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Nothing matters except what he is directly saying to the viewer. And what he's directly saying to the viewer is, these are questions that need to be asked. And it's so great that we can live in this fantastic country of ours where we can ask questions, where we're free to ask questions. Yay, yay, USA! So part two is simultaneously an introduction to the logic he's going to propose to you and a distraction from any real logic that might leak into your head during this process. Part three is arguably the most important part of the Tucker formula for political gaslighting. And it's basically his conclusion based on what he said in part two. And it usually goes something like, Therefore, we must consider or support this point of view. We must stay vigilant. Because the questions we asked are being ignored or quieted or pushed back by the mainstream media, there must be some truth to them. And what this does is that rather than putting the burden of proof on the accuser as it should be in any sort of logical line of questioning, Tucker shifts it to the accused. In other words, whatever he is accusing the Democrats of doing or saying or believing, they're guilty until proven innocent. We actually see the same logic being used in conspiracy theory circles. If we're so crazy, why don't you disprove us? The fact that you don't disprove us means that we have to be right. And actually, probably the best known example of this logic being used in the mainstream media is on a show like Ancient Aliens. 
their logic is always something to the effect of, well, there's no proof aliens did this, but there isn't any proof aliens didn't do this. Therefore, the only logical explanation is aliens. So applying this logic and line of questioning to politics, Tucker is basically saying that because the Democrats are denying to answer our claims that they're corrupt and evil and socialist and want to take over the country and want to feed your children to Satanist pedophiles, because the Democrats are denying to answer us for those things, this must mean that they're afraid. And what are they afraid of? They're silencing our line of questioning in our narrative because it must have some sort of truth to it, and they don't want that truth getting out. And the emphasis, of course, throughout this whole argument is always on you. You personally are at stake. As I explained in my Patriot Purge episode, Tucker wants you to be afraid. The Democrats and the mainstream media and the liberal elite wants to silence you. And why is that? Because they know you're right. Here's an example of Tucker using this logic on Wednesday night's broadcast. Everybody is free to ask questions about it and demand real answers. If you're coming up with some sort of crazy theory about what happened at Nancy Pelosi's house last Friday, instead of yelling at you or calling you names or telling you you're a conspiracy nut, you're Alex Jones, just produce the police body cam. Why is that so hard? If you think something weird was going on on January 6th, okay, it's not your fault. Maybe it's the fault of the people who are hiding thousands of hours of video evidence from January 6th. Why haven't they released that? The onus is on them, not the rest of us. We're not the crazy people, you're the liars. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, period. And if that's banned, this is a totalitarian country. There you have it, folks, straight from the horse's mouth. We're just asking questions. Even if those questions are completely crazy and conspiratorial, we still need to ask them, and they still need to produce evidence to disprove them, or else we're just going to assume that they're true. This is gaslighting in its purest, most refined form that I've ever seen. And Tucker is a master at it. He uses this formula almost every night on his show, mostly talking about how the Democrats want to silence your right to free speech. But in this case, after the Pelosi attack happened, he tried to frame it as a democratic attempt to paint the right as violent and conspiratorial. So I wasn't able to find a clip of what he actually said. So I'm basically going off a paraphrase here that I wrote down in my notes. But this was his response using the Tucker formula for political gaslighting to what happened to Paul Pelosi. And I'm going to try and do my impersonation of him here. I hope it does him justice. <clears throat> What the attacker did was wrong, and I hope he recovers. But Democrats are clearly trying to use this issue to distract from their own history of supporting political violence with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And I'm just asking questions here. But the attack does seem like it timed itself perfectly before the election so Democrats could blame Republicans and call them violent after it happened. So who does an attack like this really benefit? Ask yourself that question and things start to make a lot of sense. The Democrats could have seen this attack as an opportunity to come after Republicans and blame them for what was certainly, at least partially, their fault. They don't want you to know that, and they're doing everything they can to keep that information from you. 
So if we break that statement down, we can see all three parts of the Tucker formula in action. First, the disclaimer. I don't condone political violence and I hope he recovers. This allows him to back off if any of his statements blow up in his face and say, see, I hope he recovers and I don't condemn political violence. Whatever I said after that doesn't matter. Then he starts to question the reality. Who does an attack like this really benefit? He implores his audience to ask that question themselves so that they can arrive at the conclusion that he wants them to. And then in part three, the big guns come out, the ancient aliens logic. They could have seen this attack as an opportunity to come after Republicans. They're not indicating that it wasn't this, and they're trying to silence you, so that must mean that that is the logical explanation for what happened. The Democrats want to politicize this attack at your expense, so you need to stay vigilant and never believe what the Democrats or the mainstream media tell you. This is, admittedly, an extremely workable, easy to follow, and most importantly, effective strategy to market your message to people who don't know any better. Because if you can convince them that your way is the only way and that your information is the only information that they can trust, even if you give them knowingly false information, they'll always believe it. And the point that I wanted to get to with this whole story is that Tucker and other pundits who are now catching up to his way of doing things are using this formula to proactively ready the bubble for a GOP defeat and encourage violence if it does happen. There have been multiple instances over the last month or so of Fox hosts and other conservative pundits on places like Newsmax and Steve Bannon's Pandemic War Room that have said that forceful means could be necessary to make elections right. Tucker himself has said something to the effect of, you may see mainstream media saying that Democrats are winning in places like Pennsylvania or Arizona or Wisconsin. This doesn't mean that they actually have. And of course, in true Tucker formula fashion, he concluded the statement with something like, I'm not an election denier, but with all the doubt in the air about the 2020 election, should we really trust the mainstream media and the powers that be if they say Democrats also win in 2022? I don't think we should. We should be doing everything we can to hold our leaders accountable for conducting accurate elections, including not accepting the results if they aren't legitimate. So looking at this statement from both a factual and logical perspective, and again, that was just a paraphrase of what I know he has said on his show, it seems to me that the conservative media bubble, with Tucker as its head, is bracing its viewers for January 6th, 2.0. Except now, they're going to be the ones in the right this time. Conservative media all over is simultaneously predicting a red wave, but saying that the results shouldn't be trusted if there isn't one. And it seems to me that if the Republicans do end up losing in the House or the Senate, or both, the bubble seems to be legitimizing and encouraging behavior such as what we've seen in Arizona by the poll watchers and making light of the horrific attack on Paul Pelosi, saying it wasn't that big of a deal and we totally understand where he's coming from and, oh, it's just a slap on the wrist. So what's unsaid there is, go ahead and smash Democrats' heads to bits. And this is the truly scary part of what I've been seeing 
in the rhetoric of the right in the last month. They're not quite outright saying that violence against the left is justified, but they're definitely hinting that it could be, using tools like the Tucker formula to discourage logic, discourage reason, and trivialize the negative effects of political violence. Without a doubt, this is the most important vote for democracy that we've had in my lifetime. And what I see in the conservative media bubble is them encouraging their viewers to both disregard democracy if they lose, and a subtle nod and a wink, saying that political violence may be necessary and just to correct the mistake of democracy. And if things don't go the way they want in these midterms, it's clear from the bubble's reaction to the Pelosi attack and their support of armed poll watchers that violence is seen as a legitimate and righteous remedy to fix the problem of losing the election. And that should scare all of us into action on November 8th. So I conclude with a message to everyone listening to this podcast, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or neither or in between or wherever you may be politically. Please, if you haven't already, go out and vote. Even if you don't want to vote for the Democrats, just don't vote for the Republicans. With their low-key condoning of political violence, they're showing now that they are truly an anti-democratic party. If they win, they will consolidate their power and make sure that they never lose an election again. If they lose, they're threatening political violence. Either way, it's a bad situation. But at least if they lose, they won't be in power to be able to stop democracy as we know it. So again, I implore you, if you haven't voted already, please go do it. I'm going to be doing my next episode on the actual midterms and how the bubble covers them and the results, which I hope are in the Democrats' favor, and I do believe we have a pretty good shot at that happening. So on that happy note, let's go ahead and move right along to this episode's Alex Jones Award. This one's short but sweet, folks. This episode's Jonesy goes to Johnny Teague. He's the Republican nominee for Congress in Texas's 7th District, and in addition to the usual Republican talking points, he also considers himself a history buff. Which is great. We always want people elected who know our history. But I would say his take on history is a little bit different than what you might have heard otherwise. But Mr. Teague is specifically a fan of alternate history novels. So much so, in fact, that he wrote his own alternate history novel. Which, on its own, sounds like a really cool idea. How awesome would it be to be able to go back in time and change one thing and see how history panned out from there? But the change that Mr. Teague makes in his alternate history novel is not one that you might normally think of. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's not a change that anyone in their right mind would ever think up of. Mr. Teague's alternate history novel is called The Lost Diary of Anne Frank. It's a novel imagining the Jewish Holocaust victims' final days in the Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen concentration camps as she might have written them in her diary. So in this alternate timeline, Anne Frank actually took her diary with her to the concentration camps and documented her time as a prisoner there. Now you might think that this premise sounds extremely offensive just on its own, considering that Anne Frank is one of the most 
famous victims of the Nazis from World War II, and we all read her diary when we were in high school. But wait, there's more! Taking a girl who already suffered at the hands of the Nazis and making her suffer even more isn't the worst part of this alternate history novel. In this book, Anne Frank actually embraces Christianity just before she dies. That's right, folks. In this alternate history book, one of the arguably most famous Jewish people in human history converts to Christianity after experience in the concentration camps. The promotional text says that Teague's book picks up where her original journey left off and attempts to extend the writing style of her original diary into her experiences in the camps. At one point, Anne Frank writes in her diary, I would love to learn more about Jesus and all he faced in his dear life as a Jewish teacher. Teague also insinuates that Anne's father Otto, who in real life actually survived the Holocaust, seems to have survived only because of his interest in learning about Jesus. And at the end of the book, when she's about to die in a concentration camp, she says, quote, Every Jewish man or woman should ask questions like, Where is the Messiah? Did he come already? And we didn't recognize him. So, if taking one of the most famous sufferers of the Holocaust and putting her in a concentration camp where she suffers even more isn't bad enough, this nominee for Congress in Texas, by the way, converts Anne Frank to Christianity. An online outlet called the Jewish Telegraphic Agency reached out to Teague for comment on this admittedly insane concept of a book, and he had a couple of interesting things to say about it. Teague says he based Frank's interpretation of Jesus off a reference in her original diary to her father wanting her and her little sister Margot to be exposed to the New Testament and the life of Jesus. And he said, quote, As she made these entries in her own hand, I could not pretend that the thoughts, lessons, or questions of Jesus never crossed her mind afterward. But the best part of this is that he also mentioned that he includes Jesus because, quote, When the Jewish people were suffering so much torment and suffering, it is impossible to imagine them not contemplating in their turmoil the longing for a Messiah to rescue them. I mean, I have no words here. I'm just gonna let President Obama take this one. Now, first of all, what? What, what? What? It's just so offensive to me. I mean, I can't speak for Jewish people, I'm not one of them, but it just seems so offensive to me to take one of the most famous figures in Jewish history, put her in a concentration camp where she suffers even more, and then at the end of all that suffering, just to add the chef's kiss at the end of all this craziness, she converts to Christianity. I'm aware Teague himself says that she doesn't explicitly convert in his book, but it's pretty clear from those passages that I read just where her thought process was going. So congratulations to Texas congressional candidate Johnny Teague. Your alternate history book, where Anne Frank is thrown into a concentration camp and learns about the glory of Jesus, is the winner of this episode's Alex Jones Award. That's going to do it for this episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. If you liked it, feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. As always, you can find me on Twitter at UCB underscore podcast, or you can follow my personal Twitter at Pimo the Music Man. 
Although, if we're being honest, I'm not exactly sure how much longer I'm going to be on Twitter the way things are going. I might even do an episode about it at some point in the future. But for now, I'll see you after the midterms. Have a good one, folks, and don't forget to vote.